You're listening to Seattle Sports Saturday with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. This is Seattle Sports Saturday right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Can confirm. <laughs> Lydia Cruz, Taylor Jacobs, I'm Curtis Rogers. It's post-mortem as we've now had, what, six days to... I guess put the Seahawks season in perspective. Go through the stages of grief if that was necessary for you. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's still people out there that you know just give the Seahawks another minute. Maybe something else happens and and they're playing tomorrow for an NFC title game, but that's not not the case. Unfortunately, as they fell to the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship game, but now begins one of the more important off seasons I can remember uh, in you know, the Pete Carroll era, because you've got 11 wins in your pocket this year, but going from a 9, 10, 11 win team to a 13 win team. First round by team. That is a tough, tough step to take for any team. It's not an easy one, but hopefully the Seahawks are able to put themselves in position to do so coming up here in 2020. They'll have some money to spend, and that they'll be able to go after Clowney. They'll be able to go after some of these people. You have Russell. Plenty of draft picks as well. Exactly, and we saw the impact of some of the rookies so far this year, and there's going to be an expectation of more responsibility next year. Cody Barton most likely to get some more playing time. You're going to see some more expanded roles there. So if you have faith in, in John and Pete, you have to have faith that they can start it up again this off season and, and get it going, and this is the time when – Look, there really is no off season in football. The Super Bowl will come in a few weeks, and then it will be all eyes ahead onto the draft, focusing for the draft and free agency and everything else that comes with it. Yeah, this is the meeting of the Seahawks fan support group. Mm. This entire three hours ahead, we'll discuss, break down this season. We've each got our own interpretation on on what was great about it what they can improve on for next year. We'd love your suggestions, as always, uh, into the Coors Light text line, 710-710, on how you interpreted this season, whether it was success, whether they fell short of expectations. But this is a support group. We're here for you. It's going to be okay. Yeah, we've heard a lot of contrasting opinions this week on what the Seahawks should do going forward. Heck, there's even a, a small percentage of Seahawks fans that are calling for jobs of very important people in it's the organization. It's small but loud. Yeah. It is. They have their pitchforks, or it's more like uh, mouse clicks and yeah. keyboards, but they're they're loud with what they type. They're and like the Napoleon of the Seahawks Twitter community. <laughs> yep. You know, we understand you're there, but in history, you know, we'll look back on you as a shortcoming. <laughs> There we go. That's coming up uh, at about 9.30, but in 10 minutes or so, we're going to do some word association and give you our one play of the year that sticks out to us, our one game of the year. We're each giving you that. That's coming up in about 10 minutes from now as we try to define what we saw for the Seahawks in 2019. And then we're going to try and, and look forward. What do they need to address heading into 2020 that takes them over the top, a place that they've been trying to scratch and claw their way back to ever since the fateful Super Bowl 49. How are they going to get back to that in 2020? We'll talk that later on in this hour. But as we do each and every Saturday, we started off with our big three. Number one. The Seahawks lost to the Packers. It was another close one, 28-23 in Green Bay in, at Lambeau Field, one of the toughest places to play, ending their season in the divisional round. That is 
one round further than they were last year. The Hawks dominating, or were dominated, excuse me, in the first half of that game, down 21-3 at halftime, but able to mount a comeback in the second half, as we have seen so often here in Seattle, Seattle ultimately falling short in the fourth quarter. Pete Carroll said after the game that his biggest regret this year was injuries, which I found interesting and slightly troubling. Uh, we'll explain later in this hour, but the Fire Pete Carroll crowd, as we as we discussed, the Fire Pete Carroll, he's wasting Russell Wilson's prime crowd, was out in full force on Twitter. Carroll's uh, defense also came uh, came to rumble, came to fight. Like most things in life, I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Pete Carroll is a great coach. There are things he can improve on. We'll discuss at 9.30 a.m. this morning on that. And also, how would you evaluate the season? Just as just as C-Rodge said, the more on that at 9.15 a.m. Number two. It's been an up-and-down start to the Pac-12 season for the Huskies. Last week, UW responded to the suspension of Quad A Green by getting swept in the Bay Area by Cal and Stanford. This week, it's been better with a 64-56 win over Oregon State on Thursday night. UW able to get that win without the help of freshman forward Jaden McDaniels, who injured his ankle against Cal. He will be a game-time decision this afternoon against the Ducks. But in that game against the Beavers, the Huskies got double-digit scoring contributions from five different players, including stud freshman Isaiah Stewart, who led the way with 13 points. Currently, ESPN's bracketologist Joe Lenardi has the dogs among his next four teams out. So UW, they can get back on the bubble today with a win against number 8 Oregon. It is going to be a prime time slot, 1245 today at Heckhead on CBS doesn't get much bigger in the eyes of the college basketball world when you're that afternoon game on CBS. The Huskies trying to play their way back into the NCAA tournament conversation. No better opportunity than this afternoon against the Oregon Ducks. Number three. Well, what a week it was to be a Coug. Former Hawaii head coach Nick Rolovich introduced as the new head coach of the football team, in Pullman, Morgan Weaver goes number two overall in the NWSL soccer draft. Coug legend Steve Gleason received a Congressional Gold Medal pardon me, for his brave work in helping to defeat the terrible disease that is ALS. The Splash Bros have made it to the Palouse as Clay Thompson and Steph Curry are out there ready for Clay's retirement, uh, Jersey retirement, later today as uh, the Cougs will take on Oregon State. But earlier this week, Wazoo Basketball upset number 8 Oregon 72-61 to notch their first win against the top 10 team since I was in school. And I believe, Curtis, it was against... uh, It was against Arizona. Yeah, it was against Arizona. I was not enrolled at Arizona at the time. No, you were still on, in high school. Yeah, you were on the way. Yeah, you were just you were deciding between the two, and you're like, you know what? I need to go to Arizona. I need to give them the lift they need yeah, after this it, game. It was that loss. I was like, all right, that's it. That I'm sealed going. it for me. Uh, but in all seriousness, it, it is great to see Kyle Smith get the basketball team back on track. As uh, when I was in school, there the basketball team was a little bit more well regarded and well attended, and not so much necessarily. This is the case this year. Well, Fun I fact, mean, I also did rush the court that day. I mean, as one should, at least, if they get that opportunity in their college lifetime. I never did because... Arizona, we, yeah, we, are you going to rush a court? Yeah, we were never <laughs> a dramatic underdog in any game that I ever saw. Uh, but if you ever get that opportunity, I say go for it. 
It doesn't matter if it's, you know, you're barely beating a, a team that's like number 25 or something or number one. Yeah. Court. I've rushed three courts, two fields. Wow. So that's my that's my tally. That's that's impressive. One of which was I didn't even go. I went I rushed the court when UW beat Stanford with Josh Childress, that undefeated Stanford team oh, yeah, yeah. that almost lost to the Cougs the week before, but ended up losing to UW. I went to the game with some friends, and people were rushing. It was like, all right, well, I guess we're doing this. I I have never rushed a court. I have seen two court rushings in person last year, or no, two years ago, when Dominic Green hit the three against Arizona. Yeah. Heck, Ed. Yeah. Uh, and then a few years before that, Arizona lost to Oregon on Oregon Senior Day down in Eugene. That was like a, the Aaron Gordon year. Ooh, uh, with yeah. Arizona. Yeah, so I've seen two court stormings. That's just the curse of living life at the top. It Zeros. is. It you is. know, the rest of us, we live, we live life somewhere much further below. So, yeah. you know, that's our benefit. Eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, some other honorable mention. By the way, that Coup game, you can hear that here today. Pre-game show begins at 1230. Yep. 1 o'clock tip-off between the Cougs and the Beavers right here in 710 ESPN Seattle. Some honorable mentions. Mariners announced their pitchers and catchers report date. Let's Thank go. the Lord, February 12th uh, is when pitchers and catchers will arrive in Peoria. I believe full squad workouts begin the 18th. Yep. So mark I'm that on your calendar. Mark it on your calendar. You know, you can sort of forget about Valentine's Day. It's not as cool of a holiday as pitchers and catchers report date in my mind. It's corporate anyways. Get everyone yeah. a card in your life for that day. It's for corporate fat cats. Exactly. <laughs> Which none of us can claim to no. be. No. Not yet. Uh, not yet. I hope to be there. I hope to sell out. Yeah. Right? That'd oh, be man, great. I want to sell out so hard. <laughs> uh, the, some other news. Brendan Carroll, who is the son of Pete Carroll, also on the Seahawks coaching staff, he is among the candidates for the Hawaii head coaching job that Nick Rolovich vacated uh, when he took the job in Pullman. So there maybe could be some shifting on the Seahawks staff. What Brendan if you're Nate Car- Carroll? Do you feel left out? Yeah, it's like my bro's gone. Uh, what do I? What, yeah. what, who am I going to talk to about dad holding me back? Yeah, jeez. Yeah. Cooler name, though. Brendan, I like Nate. No. Nate. Carroll? I like Nate more. Yeah. Sorry. Nate? I know nothing about either of them as people, but I'm just going to say that. I, like I believe more. Nate is one of the people that is in charge of like timeouts with mm-hmm. the Seahawks. And has been. I retract my yeah. statements. <laughs> and we'll and I'll give them later oh, about right. which Carol I like better. Well, um, hopefully, hopefully they can get back in your good graces. Yeah, well. Maybe, maybe Brendan, if he gets the job at Hawaii. Uh, that's that's something, and maybe that will be a focus of this off season. We're talking about improvements that this team can make. In nine thirty, we'll talk about what Pete Carroll can can do this off season to improve. That might be one of those areas. Hiring somebody that specifically can help you with the calling of timeouts. Yeah, Danny O'Neill's always had the idea of hire like one of those Madden pros to do yeah. it because those guys know. I don't know the... why every team doesn't have one. Exactly. They have esports teams. Like just literally go get the guy who represents your Madden team for esports and just bring him up. Just put him in a room with the team and be like, "Well, call timeout here." There's yeah. no cap get on him some the Mountain coaches Dew. that you can. Yeah. Get him some Doritos. <laughs> Easy. We're good. You don't even look. You could even get him a direct line to his house. Like we have a VPN to John's house. Let's just get a VPN to that person's house. Let him sit on the couch, play play a simulated Madden game of whatever they're watching, and then just be able to tell what the timeouts and everything are. So it, it's perfect. Solved. We fixed it, guys. There we go. I guess we can go home. Sorry, there. we just ruined the, the next two well, and a half hours. See you guys next week. Oh no, actually, we still have about two and a half hours yeah. left. So let's get into it. 
How are we defining the Seahawks' 2019 season? We'll give you one word, one play, one game each. We want to hear from you. What is your one play? What is your one game that would define this 2019 season for the Seahawks? We get into that next. Seattle Sports Saturday, 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Get one word, one play, one game to define the 2019 Seahawks season right here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Brian McKnight, one. Nas, one mic. That's true, yeah. Beatles, one. back at one? Ooh, good one, too. Yeah. You get one word, you get one play, one game to define this Seahawks season. How are you doing and how are we doing it? Let's get into it. Lydia, what is your one word that you would use to define what we just watched with the Seahawks in 2019? Well, if you ask Pete Carroll what his one word was... I think it was resilience. I heard that word so often this season, which leads into my word, which is unexpected. I think this team outperformed all of the preseason expectations from national pundits, but even some local uh, local ones who thought this might be an eight-win team, uh, eight, maybe nine-win team, just with where they were at a year ago, losing Earl, um, like going into the draft with only four draft picks, making the trade of Frank Clark, but uh, losing a lot of th- of key pieces on defense as well. So I think unexpected is the best way to describe it because 14 one-score games this year in the, in the regular season and postseason, 11 wins in those close games and only three losses to both all to really good teams. I think that was the, the, the Saints, the 49ers, and then the Packers that you lost those close games to. I think what they did this year was pretty remarkable, and it's a testament to, to who Pete Carroll is as a coach and how bought in all these people are into this system. We've talked about it in the past before. You're going to play hurt at some point in the year, but can you, can you think beyond yourself at that point and play for people? You saw Dwayne Brown. Like in that last game, he was only two weeks off of surgery. Joey Hunt was playing with a dislocated, or what did he have? Well, and he dislocated his finger. Yeah, it was like dislocated. But he also had a fibula injury that he was playing on. And and there's these instances. Jadevian Clowney was probably in pain every single time he walked, ran, or breathed with his injury. So I think unexpected in the way they were able to, to win close games. A lot of times late game heroics, as we've seen in the past, but ultimately just coming up short Taylor yeah Taylor what do you see from the Seahawks with one word how would you define yeah to me this whole season this was the genesis this was the start of the Russell Wilson era officially in Seattle it had been the Legion of Boom era you had all these people on the defense no Earl no Sherm no Cam no Frank Clark and then even on the offensive side no Doug Baldwin you're you're truly changing the guard there and letting Russell be the man here in Seattle and we saw how successful this team could be heck we're having conversations about firing Pete Carroll because of how successful Russell Wilson was this year and the fact he was in the MVP race if not leading it for most of the year in conjunction with uh, Lamar, the two of them kind of going back and forth. But this just felt like the genesis of Russell Wilson taking over. It's his team. We saw that they can make it to the playoffs, and now the conversation is how can they take that next step forward? How can they get the the pieces around Russell? 
to make that run again? Is it Pete Carroll holding Russell back? Is it all of these things? So I think it was the genesis of talking about that. And just the way I know it, we, we talk about 2012 and Joe fan mentioned it, Curtis, we were talking about this uh, before we came on the show that it's almost becoming the 95 season for the Mariners. And just that we, we harp on this one year, right? And go back. Can, can it be like 95? Can it be like 12? This feels not like 2012, but but a new beginning and an exciting time that knowing that Russell's going to be here for a while, playing like an MVP for a while, and all they need to do is keep surrounding him with talent, and it feels like this team will be competitive as long as number three's taking snaps. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think it's darn near impossible to replicate what the Seahawks had from 12 through about 15. That sort of chunk of this era of Seahawks football. To expect each and every year to be like that is going to be very tough. And I don't know if it's fair to the guys that have followed that era because of just how good those teams were. You had a lot of pieces in place in 2012. You didn't have quite as many question marks. You knew this team was going to be good. You outscored opponents in a three-game stretch by like 140 points. So that's not quite where this team is at but I think the way that that season ended in a heartbreaking loss in a loss where you fell down very far on the road were able to mount a comeback and still had a lot of hope that I think is the only similarity between those two where you do still have a lot of hope for the future and this is going to be a really exciting offseason I like that genesis for me my word is defiance defiance in a good way defiance in a bad way defiant in how they went about playing their own style of football not sort of conforming to the group think that exists in the NFL, uh, how you should have the, the, the sexy offensive coordinator and, and you know the, the guy who is dialing up 50 pass plays a game because that's how you win in today's NFL. Well, no, the Seahawks were able to rack up 11 wins doing it how they have really done it the entirety of Pete's time here is running the ball, setting up play action by running the ball more and more and more. And that is defiant of just a lot of people who think you have to pass the ball to win in the NFL, but also defiant in a bad way because, well, that means if when you're running the ball, that's less times the ball is in Russell Wilson's hand. They're also defiant in sort of, you know, the, the preseason pr- projections for them where they just, you know, we don't care what you guys have to say. We're going to go out there. And we're going to make the playoffs because we have a really good quarterback and a really good coaching staff. Yeah, there are people out there calling for Pete's head and, and whatnot, but to say that anything le- or anything that Pete Carroll has accomplished is less than good is is pretty ridiculous. He's got what a hundred wins as head coach of the Seahawks. I believe he's, I think he's the winningest coach in franchise history already, and he's only been here what ten seasons. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, but, yeah, I think the Seahawks team was pretty defiant in all aspects of the game. And, you know, yeah, defiant and they were able to win without a pass rush. We're going to do it our own way. Sometimes that can be very frustrating to watch. But 11 wins, hard to complain about. Maybe they could have had 12-13 if things broke their way. But uh, to me, I look at the 2019 Seahawks and I say they were a pretty defiant bunch. Defiant. I like it. If you've got a word, text in 710-710 on the Coors Light text line. We'd love to hear how you would uh, define the 2019 season in one word. How about a single play? If you have to think back uh, on this season, whether it's a play that echoes or reflects the word you chose 
or just one you think really puts a bow on this season? What play are you picking? Man, when I look at this season and the play that gets me the most excited for the future as well as the play that I think excited me the most, the one that brought me out of my seat when I saw it happen on my TV screen was DK Metcalf icing the wildcard game. And, I mean, his, his what, what was it, a 36-yard reception. It was just unbelievable to watch him go that far. I, I think we got it here. Nope, we don't. <laughs> oh, but, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, DK Metcalf's crazy, crazy reception. I think that, to me, was the play of the season, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and Russell, too, on that play was amazing. I think he picked up on, on the zero blitz, like, right off the bat, and then – a beauty to DK who came up uh, with a peace sign and saying, all right, see, see you later. It almost felt too in that moment. He was saying that peace out to the haters point to me too, even though he would probably uh, never say that. He's very team oriented. My is another amazing Russell Wilson play. There were so many this season, as we mentioned early on the MVP candidate until Lamar Jackson really took things over in the second half. But it was the pass from Russell Wilson to Tyler Lockett in the back of the end zone that all of us just assumed was a throwaway that was just uh, going to be uh, an empty play. It was Russell Wilson finding Tyler Lockett. This was the first game against the Rams at home at CenturyLink Field for the 13-yard touchdown. Nope, we don't have it. Nope, okay. Just kidding. It's an acoustic set today. Yeah. yeah. Do, 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 we should just do, do. describe it. But anyway, that was insane. The catch probability, I think, was just over 6% on that. It was incredible. So, yeah, I, 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 Russell is so amazing, and I understand the crowd that comes out and, and from a certain point says the Fire P. Carroll crowd because they, they know this is a, like a generational player, but. <laughs> there. Yeah. <laughs> now we have sound. Yeah, we do. Let's go. All right. Let's see. Let's see. This is Russell finding Tyler. No, we don't. Nope, we don't. Okay. We're just kidding. We're good. I think it's me, guys. Sorry. I have sound. I can play my okay. play. All right. Play it. Uh, because I thought it's going to be overlooked. It's going to become the Jermaine Curse catch of this entire season. And I don't want to overlook it. And it feels like this week specifically we shouldn't overlook this play. It was when Shaquem Griffin and Shaquille Griffin combine on the sack on a uh, Aaron Rodgers third and nine play. Takes the shotgun snap. Seattle rushes for But yes. coming. They get to him. And it's Shaquem Griffin who gets there. Shaquille was the brothers Griffin met at Aaron Rodgers, and they buried him. And what a scene. And you can hear 12s in the stands cheering the twin brothers. I got to check to see if Shaquem, it is his first career sack. Way to go, youngster. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen on a football field. And when are you going to see brothers? Twins. Twins. Combining on a sack on the same play, same team. On a play that we don't run very much in Seattle, like no. corner blitz. And that was so cool. I'd like to, someone said this to me on Twitter. I like to pretend that that's how the game ended. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like in, uh, for those of you who have the uh, Mile My VHS, I usually t- would turn it off after the Yankees series before they got into the mm-hmm. Cleveland Indians series. So it ends on uh, Edgar's double. Yeah, we beat the Yankees, won the World Series. It was such a great feel. We all remember it that way. It was such a great feel. Delusion's powerful. Yeah, 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 it is. 
Uh, no, but seriously, um, just a, a moment like that, I know we lost the game and people will focus on the loss and things like that. But in history, I think we'll look back on this moment and say, wow, how cool was that to see those two on the field together, playing together? Because, again, maybe things change next year. Who knows if they'll get to play together more, less. You just never know with the NFL. So it's just cool to see moments like that and to, to take it into perspective. It's possible that will never happen in yep. football ever again. Yep. So, yeah, it, pretty darn cool. Yeah, that's uh, those are our one words, our one plays. We, we'll give you our one game and our one quote that defines this season uh, coming up a little bit later. But also, Pete Carroll what is it about him that you're either in one camp or another? He either got Pete's back or you want him gone. What makes Pete Carroll drive people to feel that way? We get into that here. Seattle Sports Saturday, 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. People got in their feelings this week, you guys. And I think that happens. It's magnified because the Seahawks season ended in a way that I think was avoidable. I think had they come out a little more fiery in the first half, they wouldn't have been staring down such a huge deficit in the second half of the divisional round. And because of that, there were a lot of people, not a lot, but a a very vocal group of Seahawks fans this week that... They're calling for people's heads, specifically the guy really in charge of it all in terms of player personnel, in terms of play calling, the one Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll has been undoubtedly the most successful coach in Seahawks franchise history. There has never been anybody who has accomplished more in their time on the sidelines of Seattle. And yet, that may not be good enough for a section of fans of the Seahawks. Is it good enough? Is what we saw in 2019, is that good enough for what the Seahawks can be in 2020? Is that good enough for giving you hope moving forward? I struggled with this this week a little bit, mainly because if you've listened to the show or, or know me at all, you know I've been calling for Mike Leach's head and job for a while. And that I had gotten sick of this sort of good being the enemy of great and being comfortable in the good. And I, th- I was thinking, are the Seahawks in that same spot? Where are the where are the comparisons between the same? Look, they're not success. You can't compare the two. The the Cougs aren't as successful as the Seahawks. I'm not going to sit here and be a crazy idiot. But the 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 feeling I had towards Leach and the reason why I felt that way isn't the way I feel about Pete Carroll in this coaching situation. And I actually feel like the main difference and we hear it all the time. It's probably the biggest buzzword in sports right now is the culture of the team in the locker room, the culture Pete Carroll brings to these teams. You talk about just tell the truth Mondays and, and the whole schedule you talk about, what he's doing with players and empowering them to speak their minds and be active in the communities and and all of those types of things. And just the culture here with the Seahawks and around the Seahawks is so much different. And it just provides a different feeling than that, that I feel at Wazoo. And it's no disrespect, but I think that's a lot to do. That has a lot to do with Pete Carroll and 
what he brings as a co- uh, as a coach to a team. There's no better coach in the NFL six days of the week, Monday through Saturday, mm-hmm. and those are all of the things that you can't easily replace. It, exactly what you said, Taylor. Pete Carroll, the the way he builds a culture, gets guys to believe in it, remains positive, never throws a player under the bus. Um, it's just it's pretty remarkable and allows players. It's a player-friendly environment. You heard players talk about how much they like to come here, whether it was Dwayne Brown or Jadevian Clowney, and appreciate how professional this organization is run, how well it's run. The areas that Pete Carroll, I think he can improve on are ones that are fixable. They are the the Sunday in-game decisions. And I think that should give fans hope because no coach is perfect. And the things that Pete Carroll lacks are things that are fixable. And that's but, the, oh, yeah, I was going to say. But does he, is he able to recognize exactly. that's that he the has areas that need fixing? That's, that is the main question because at a certain point, have you had enough success using a certain philosophy method to stay dedicated to that and to not update it, to not, you have to also be very honest, the tell the truth Monday thing. You have to be honest and say, well, what's not working? What can I do better? What have I not been doing well? And that's tough. That's a good point you bring up because to me, as an outsider looking at the Seahawks, it feels like tell the truth Monday is kind of a one-way street. Like, does Pete Carroll get up in front of the team and say, hey, guys, I blew it on that fourth down call. We really should have gone for it. We we should have not punted in that situation. We had an opportunity to really get the game back in our hands, and, and I, I frankly was not unable to do it. You know, Does Pete Carroll ever get in front of the team and say that? I don't know. The most troubling thing to me this year was when he was asked what his biggest regret from the season was, and he said injuries. Mm-hmm. And – maybe call me old fashioned on my uh, guilt and regret <laughs> category, but I feel like you can't regret something that you didn't directly influence. You know, like that's something that it implies a certain amount of contrition or a certain amount of personal responsibility. So if he says his biggest regret is injury, something he couldn't control, that's the part that troubles me because don't you have regrets about your own behavior or your own play calling or your own, like, I think that is the part that had me a little bit concerned because, yes, the injuries were devastated and you can be disappointed about them. You were down to your fourth string running back and somebody who was semi-retired a few weeks ago. But I think it has to start with him telling the truth to himself and saying, well, here's my biggest regret. Here was what I can be better at. How do you think, if he were to do that, let's say Pete Carroll gets in front of the team and he calls himself out and this offseason – what do you think he can do to address some of the things where he fell short this season? I think is it coaches, is it is it getting himself trained? Is it what do you think he could do that would make you say, okay, he's addressing it, he's thinking about it, he's working on it. What is there is there anything? I think just ba- just what he says in his interviews and in his press conferences, that kind of lends little bit of a window into how Pete does his coaching and, and whatnot. And if we kind of hear the same buzzwords that we've heard all the time from him, I don't think that's going to signal that anything has changed with the Seahawks, especially when he's asked about late game situations, especially when he's asked about fourth down situations, Jeff Schwartz and 
fingers crossed on this audio here. Uh, he joined <laughs> Bob David Moore earlier this week and was asked if he thinks Carroll will modernize the offense at all, and he says, don't get your hopes up. No, he's like 70. How many 70-year-olds do are going to change what they're doing that have been successful for so many years doing it? He won a Super Bowl. He's one yard away from another Super Bowl. And by the way, that call to, to pass the ball was actually the right call. So, you know, we, we kind of mock him. That was, I think, the right call. He doesn't call those plays anyways on offense. Um, but... Um, no, because they win, you know, they win at least nine games every year that he's the coach and they make the playoffs. He's not, not going to change. But again, I think it's a, it's a team building philosophy issue too, right? Is that you're, you're drafting running backs, you're drafting bigger defensive ends, like you're drafting guys that don't really fit how the way modern football is being played right now. And, and so it's not going to change until he's gone. And I don't think he's leaving anytime soon. That's yeah. That's an important stipulation there. Either, which do you think is easier? I'll ask you guys. To adjust your personnel to fit your scheme or adjust your scheme to fit your personnel? I think it is easier to adjust your scheme to fit your personnel. and Because you've already got the pieces in place. All you have to do, you're just changing the thought process of essentially one person, and that's yourself. Whereas trying to get players to fit your scheme You've got to do an entire roster overhaul. You've got to change just about everything there is in the meeting rooms and just everything there is within within an organization. I think it's an easier road to take if a coach is going to say, you know what, I can change what I'm doing to match my personnel. Gosh, it, yeah, I agree with you, Curtis, but I feel like it is the other way almost that when you know what your plan is and you can go out there and find the guys to fit the plan that that should be in again in theory the easier way to do it cuz they should be able to come in and do the role you expect them to do if you're if you're aware of what you want and you identify it and go out there and, and get someone who fills that role it feels like it should then just all fall into place. And it's not like Pete's scheme has been unsuccessful. He's right. been maybe the second best coach in all of football over the last 20 years. Yeah. If you consider his time at USC and at Seattle. So it's like, I mean, yeah, we can sit here and bang our head about you know Pete and just his in-game management, but the totality of his resume, it's kind of like, well, it's worked to this point. Why wouldn't it work in the future? Yeah. I mean, so if we had to boil this down then about what Pete Carroll can do in this offseason to improve, we've we've talked about being honest with oneself about where you can improve. We've talked about making adjustments, whether that is your scheme or your personnel. I thought I think it also goes to making in-game adjustments. It it shouldn't take you till the second half of a game to find out that your defense is not working in that Green Bay game. You didn't make the adjustments fast enough and digging yourself that hole and expecting you know to come down to the late game drama which Pete Carroll said he's always craved in sports and he likes that late game drama but you know an early blowout would be fine too right still a win's a win you know allow Allow it it. the whole you can't win a game in the first quarter second quarter third quarter no but you can set yourself up nicely for that fourth quarter yes you can almost lose a game in the first quarter that can can still happen you can set the pace yeah so if Pete is going to make these changes, well, we know by the very first meeting of the 2020 season, when they put the 2019 season to rest, and who knows, they may already have, 
What is it that we want to see from these Seahawks right out of the gate, not even in the season, but like minicamp, rookie minicamp? What is it that we want to see from Seattle that tells us things are headed in the right direction? We talked that. Seattle Sports Saturday, 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Make sure you're downloading the Seattle Sports Saturday podcast, 710sports.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Five stars only. Five stars only. New app is out, so if you uh, hit up your app store or Google Play store. Powered by the Dubin Law Group. Indubitably. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so a nice little upgrade to your app there. Your listening experience. Also a dark background so you can pull it up at night and not have your eyes burned out of your head. Yeah. Or first thing in the morning. Or first thing in the morning, which is usually what I would do and be like, ah! (laughs) Really really gives you that jolt. You can really, yeah, wake up with 710 the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we want to see the Seahawks wake up with a jolt, right? In 2020, we want to see them not get off to the slow start that is customary for this team. Uh, We've seen it every single year. It's not just slow starts to the season, but it's slow starts to games. What is it about the Seahawks right now that we want to see from them in 2020 that we think is going to be sort of greasing the wheels for change and, and greasing the wheels towards a much more productive 2020 season? Now, it doesn't get much more productive than 11 and 5. You've only got you know, between 12 and 16 wins you can get. So they were right there. You know, if things bounced their way, they would have gotten to 13, maybe even 12, or 12, 13, 14 wins this season if some of those close losses work out in Seattle's favor. So it's not like they're that far off. But also, they kind of are in some aspects. So what is it that we want to see from Seattle right out of the gates from just some key, key people in, in that are dealing with the day-to-day operations, also on the field. Let's start with John Schneider. What do we want to see from him that may be different than what we've seen from the Seahawks in their decisions in free agency, their decisions in the draft? What is it different we want to see from him heading into the 2020 season? Well, this year is automatically a little different, right? Because you've got some cap space to play with, and you're at a very different position than you were last year when you had four picks going into that draft, and he had to work a little magic. When is the last time you guys remember him having this much cap space? Man, Sorry to probably like 2011-ish, mm-hmm. heading into the 2012 season, and I think that's a way that I guess you could say, or, or 2012 heading into I was going to say, I think it's actually the 2012, because that's when they got Cliff and Bennett, right? Mm-hmm. Shorter term deals, but a little bit more expensive because. Uh, and the year before that, they had gotten what was it, Sidney Rice and Zach Miller. Yeah. So that, I mean, again, we just talked about how we shouldn't always go back to 2012. I think it was the 2012 <laughs> <we> season. <laughs> Buckle up. Where this all, yeah, it, that is the only one. But in this most recent run, especially in the most recent years five years they haven't had money like this with players under contract russell signed and draft Bobby capital signed. This. yeah already until because they've got two seconds in a first round pick the first round pick is cemented in at number 27 based off of where they finished this season but the draft the early rounds of the draft except for probably the dk metcalf pick over the last couple of seasons 
has not been the Seahawks' strong suit. We've seen yeah. them, you know, swing and miss Malik McDowell. We've seen them take their lumps with Rashad Penny and L.J. Collier and Marquise Blair this season. Those three guys, all first and second round picks. DK Metcalf, really the only one taken in the first two rounds over the last, you know, probably since the Jaron Reed pick in 2016. Where it was like, yeah, this guy is a foundational piece. This is somebody who you want to build around, and this is somebody you want for years to come. I think the Seahawks absolutely have to hit on their first couple of picks, wherever it is that they pick. If it's at 27, as we all know, probably not going to be at 27. They're probably going to either move up or down based off of you know what John Schneider and Pete Carroll see. But I think hitting in the draft, that is the biggest priority, I think, for John Schneider right now. Yeah, I think – even only obviously for what that person can contribute, but also just from an optic standpoint too, because DK Metcalf was certainly a find. I think he's going to be a star player here in Seattle for years to come, but it is hard to interpret that draft with a high grade based on LJ Collier, essentially being a disappointment this season, unfortunately. So if, let me ask you this. If you had switched those two picks and DK Metcalf was your first round and LJ Collier was your second, exactly. would you view this differently? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you just say knocked it out of the park? Yes. <laughs> I would say complete home run. LJ would be sort of an afterthought, and you'd just be like, well, it's taking him some time to ramp up. Yes. It's kind of the same in the 2017 draft. If you flip that entire draft backwards, Chris Carson's your first pick. Malik McDowell is your last pick. Then it's like, oh, that was a great draft. Home run. Uh, yeah. But But I but I agree. Yeah, you have to you have to hit in this draft and especially on defense. You have so many questions there. And your ability to draft players to be effective in your system, if you are going to stay the same schematically, then you you need a safety. You need maybe another corner. You need maybe a nickel to to play in that system. I almost think, though, it may be more important for him to go out in free agency and use the cap space to get some big-time playmakers and to get – I don't want to say stars because that's – it's hard to get stars in free agency in the NFL. We talking about stars? Right. So it, it's more along the lines of can he go out in free agency and capitalize on the, on the positions where he can sign people? Like can he get maybe a safety or re-sign Clowney and get another piece, allowing for them to take a different strategy in – the draft and essentially add more depth because I think at the end the injuries just cost this team and there was no depth. Yeah. Uh, the difference between one and the guy behind one was a big difference. And I think addressing some of the and filling it in towards the back, kind of backfilling this team and addressing the top needs in free agency feels like it might be an effective way for John to to build this team. Not that drafting stars is a bad strategy at all, but with the cap space, maybe they can use it to their advantage. So well, if, oh, yeah, and well, and the toughest thing about those injuries is that they came at positions that the Seahawks are so heavily reliant upon. Running back, offensive line. Like, if the Seahawks were a pass-first team, I don't know if the injuries to Carson, Procise, and Penny would have been as damaging as they were. But, I mean, the... 49ers game, they were able to move the ball a little bit more effectively on the ground. But then the book got out on Travis Homer. The Eagles couldn't do anything. The Packers could not do anything. Uh, it, you know, it was just so frustrating to watch the Seahawks run game 
as good as it was through the first 14, 15 weeks of the season, just hit a wall and become, you know, what it was in, what, 2016 with, like, Thomas Rawls and all those guys where it was just – it was very frustrating to watch. So who do you want to t- pay top market value for? Who are you willing to pay top market yeah. value for in the free agent market? Is it Jadevian Clowney? I mean, <laughs> he's one. He's one of the people that for sure – I He's think, a known commodity. Yes. You know what you're going to get. Maybe he did ramp up his play because it was a contract year and he wants to get that, that huge deal that I think he's deserving of. But, but just yeah. yeah, just think about what he did with the injuries still going. He could have called it off, shut it down. And I think no one in Seattle could have been upset with him knowing that he had contributed so much when he was on the field. That if he decided, look, my body just isn't right, I need to shut it down and get ready, I think people would have been like, okay, that makes sense for him to do that. It it sucks for the Seahawks, and it's going to cost us, but that's the right decision for him. But I think now you, you know he has that in him, and I think that's worthy of the investment. I think he has proven that he's a guy, a, a team guy. He can buy into the system, the culture, the coaches – he fits with the other players. He actually brings the best out in other players. So, um, look, maybe going out and getting another defensive lineman might be the best case. I know there's a few available. Um, Yannick Ngakwe mm. is one that people have been talking about. I'm a little bit more skeptical about Shaq Barrett, outside linebacker, DN, sort of that's hand in the dirt. Hybrid, yep. Similar to Clowney, actually, in the way that Clowney would drop into coverage sometimes. Chris Jones will be the cream of the crop and, and probably get the highest contract in the offseason. So. But then, you know, safety. Can they get a Justin Simmons? Should they go after a, a Byron Jones and, and a, a, a DB? Should they try and address things like that? Because, you know, unfortunately, Shaq has one pick in two years, I think. Well, he had two in the... Uh... It was the Monday night game against the Bears. But he's had one. It's only been one for a long time. Right. I think cornerback opposite of Shaquille Griffin, Trey Flowers, I think that's a spot that the Seahawks should really look at. Yeah, but maybe you have Shaq as your number two and because you've added such a great piece above him. and, And there's just a lot of potential in the free agency market to add some people. And that doesn't necessarily turn Shaq into a depth piece, but that adds depth by him sliding down the depth chart. At 11, I want to come back to this and look at the actual the free agents on the roster currently that they're going to lose and how you would prioritize re-signing them because I think that would also add to who you need to go out and add if you are going to lose some of the some of the names you've known here in Seattle. That's coming your way at 11, coming your way at 10 o'clock. We give you our big three wonder if anything's going on in baseball this week. <laughs> we will get into all of the sign-stealing fiasco that has swept the sports world over the last week. That's coming up next, Seattle Sports Saturday, 710 ESPN Seattle.